0: I'm a'udhu Billahi minash shaytanirajim, bismillahirrahmanirrahim, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulihi Sayyidina Muhammadin, Sayyidina wa s-sanadina wa habibina wa shafi'ina wa maulana, sallallahu alayhi wa ala alihi wa ashabihi wa azwajihi wa dhuriyatihi wa ahli baithihi wa man tabi'ahum bi ihsanin ila yawm al-deenihi wa baad. Alhamdulillah, by Allah's fadhu, we are back at Darst. I was gone for two weeks to Italy, uh, and uh, I should say to Sic- Sic- Sicily. Um, and uh, we missed Dars because of travel and uh, last week uh, my father came home from the hospital so uh, I don't think we could have taken care of him properly uh, while uh, you know holding Dars so that is what that is Uh, I wanted to speak a little bit about the trip to Sicily uh, but also uh, not interrupt Dars so we'll read a little bit from the book today inshallah and uh, then we'll speak about Sicily. It's not entirely irrelevant one topic to the other, as you'll see. And so, uh, even though some people will freak out about it, today we get to start Kitab al Jihad in Real Salehin. It's the Babu Fadl al Jihad. قَالَ اللَّهُ تعالى وَقَاتِلُوا الْمُشْرِكِينَ كَمَا يُقَاتِلُونَكُمْ أَنَّ اللَّهَ مَعَ الْمُتَّقِينَ This is a chapter regarding the virtue of jihad in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In case you think I'm just making this up in order to like sound whatever, uh, Ibn Allan, he was a muhadith, Makkah in the Middle Ages, student of uh, Hafiz ibn Hajar Haytami. Uh, and he writes al-Jihad, so This is not like you know, my jihad is like waking up in the morning and getting my kids ready for school. That's wonderful. <coughs> that is a struggle and uh, You'll be rewarded for that. So no one's gonna discount that but uh, when the Quran uh, in certain t- places It does use the word jihad in a more general meaning. So anyone says that it doesn't—that's obviously not a correct reading. But in many places, it, uh, uh, it means what the uh, military, the military conflict with hostile non-believers, uh, for the sake of uh, raising the the honor of the Deen. So this definition is a pretty standard definition. This idea that jihad is only defensive—this is a, a uh, improper and incorrect reading of the Kitab and Sunnah. If you wish to subscribe to that, you have to at least admit that this is not what the Prophet sallallahu alayhi taught, uh, and this is not what, from the context of Qur'an, seems to mean. <coughs> if you wish to have some sort of radical reinterpretation, some sort of Protestant revolution for Islam or whatever, people should be uh, open about that, and uh, uh, people should be honest intellectually about that, that this is what we're trying to do. We don't actually agree with the actual Qur'an itself. We're trying to, like, jerry-rig it to mean what we want it to mean. Uh, you'll probably get laughed at by the Ummah. And uh, uh, your ideas will not really go very far, except for in some sort of new age, uh, fruity, like a $12 cup of coffee uh, type circles. And uh, it will die over there, I promise you. Uh, It will not go anywhere useful, Uh, which is one of the reasons people lie about these things, is uh, because they want to somehow, through good intention or bad intention, Garner some sort of something or another that they think is going to work out better either for themselves or for the ummah um, by changing uh, what's there in the kitab and the sunnah. And it's always a failure, it's always a complete failure. It never really goes anywhere, it never really works. Uh, And so, this is uh, you know, this is not like a a recruitment seminar. There's not gonna, I'm not gonna tell you to go fight in this place or that place or the. Uh, join this group or that group or comment about whether this group is right or that group is right and uh, feel free not to ask questions about that and if you do, I'll feel free not to answer your question and tell you, uh, you know, that we said we're not going to talk about that right now this is what this is a, a, an intellectual exercise for right now what we're doing right now Islam is more than that but this right now, what we're doing is an intellectual exercise and it's based on what it's not a cop out, it's based on what it's based on the idea that right thinking precedes right speech and right speech precedes right action that right thinking precedes right speech and right speech precedes right action <laughs> we don't subscribe to the idea that oh this is just all talk or this is all just intellectual masturbation or all this is all just like a bunch of nonsense and new people are all talk why because the deen that was revealed to the Rasul sallallahu is the deen of Innamal bin niyat All deeds are going to be judged according to their intentions niyatul mu'mini min amalihi That the intention of a believer is better than the uh, than the act of the believer themselves Even though there's khair in both of them But you'll receive more reward for having good intention than you will even for the good act No matter how amazing the act is And we b- believe in the tradition of what that what's what's inside of a person is more important and more beloved to Allah Ta'ala than what's outside. And we're not the deen of what's outside is not important. (coughs) Mouth, closed, nose, breathe, thank you. But uh, we're the, we're the ummah of what? We're the ummah of right? Uh, Having, understanding them correctly first of all, and then doing things later. If you do first, and then you say I'm going to learn on the job, especially with something like jihad, you end up with all these nut-headed groups like you know ISIS and whatever. If you are, uh, I don't want to say naive, but if you want to say if you have enough goodwill toward people, that's unearned, and enough uh, uh, almost naive level of trust in other human beings and their goodness to believe that this is actually something that was started through good intentions and not just some sort of weird like you know plant and driven by people who have bad intentions toward Islam, then at the very best, at the very best, all these nut groups like ISIS and like Al-Qaeda and whatever, that like, you know, do stupid things that are basically haram in order to serve the deen, um, and that are actually very harmful to Muslims and end up racking up body counts with Muslims through their own violence, not, t- not talking about the consequences of their poor decision-making... Because when we enter that into it, then it becomes like even more. But just through their own violence, just end up killing more Muslims and harming Muslims more than they really harm anybody else, whether that person is an enemy or not an enemy, which is another discussion to have. Uh, So the idea is let's understand things first. Let's read things first. Let's not be so excited about the Quran and Sunnah that we're willing to kill other people, but we're not actually willing to read it ourselves. Let's not be so excited about, uh, uh, about fiqh that we're... Uh, willing to uh, establish Sharia that we don't even want to learn, much less practice ourselves. Um, all of these things they should go together. They should go together, and rationally, rationally understanding should precede, uh, should precede speech, and speech sh- should precede action. Rationally, meaning what? Not chronologically. They all happen at the same time, but one will lead to one being corrected will lead to the correction of the other. And the second being corrected will lead to the correction of the third. And without this understanding, uh, uh, you know, you're 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 not really doing things the way that the Prophet ﷺ taught. So today we're going to talk about, we're going to focus on, we're going to make an exercise. And over the coming weeks, we're going to make an exercise in understanding what is jihad and how is it supposed to correctly be uh, conceptualized. Right, so the first thing we said is what is that it is the, the military conflict with the hostile uh, uh, non-believers in order to raise the honor of deen so this idea of it being purely defensive it can be defensive for sure but the idea of it being purely defensive uh, is uh, I- itself a uh, kind of a modern uh, a modern uh, invention uh, in order to make people feel better in front of hostile non-believers who wish nothing good for them Right? Who are the people who call Muslims violent, the most violent people in the world? The Israelis that stole the land of people and literally have like people from Brooklyn and from New Jersey living in the houses of people that they, their ancestral houses that they lived in for centuries. They're the ones who call you, call you terrorists, right? Who, the neocons that literally bombed uh, Afghanistan and Iraq into the stone age. They're the ones who call you terrorists. Why? Because when you're trying to kill somebody and they fight back, it's annoying, right? so if you can do something to restrain them from that that's like obviously it's a no-brainer you're going to do it and uh i don't advocate uh you know any sort of violent means against our government but at the same time when they do bogus stuff and they do wrong stuff first of all we should accept that they do do really bogus and really wrong things um that that it's really transparent how like how bad it is and even though I, as an American citizen, don't advocate those things because we live here and whatever. In a universal sense, anybody who's going to tell somebody that you don't have the right to defend yourself or that you don't have the right to defend your own interests against somebody who's willing to, through violent means and hostile means, uh, harm you, that's kind of BS, that's kind of nonsense, right? This whole, like, just pray it away, like... This is great. Prayer is very powerful. There are some people, Allah loves them so much that they can make dua, and then, like, you know, things change. It's, It's true. We believe that The reading of the kitab and sunnah indicate that that's the case The one who had that power the most through his prayers Was the Prophet ﷺ Yet his sunnah is what? Is that you have to stand up and defend yourself You have to defend your deen You have to defend your ummah You have to defend your honor You have to defend your property You have to do all of that And you also have to defend your interests Which means that sometimes defense Is not defense in the sense that you have to wait for somebody You know they're planning to harm you you don't have to wait for them to show up at your door with a gun, you know, in order to take care of what you need to take care of. Uh, and so that's that's what that is. So the first ayah that Imam Nawira Ta'ala brings. Allah ta'ala says, fight the, the the polytheists completely, totally, like they fight you totally. Meaning what? There's a recognition that on the level of sovereignty, sovereign nations, there's only one rule, which is there's no rules. This is what the whole idea of sovereign immunity is. This is why you cannot prosecute a sitting head of state for any crime, nor can they prosecute our sitting head of state for a crime. The idea is that sovereignty, what does that mean? What does it mean to be your own country, right? Why is Illinois not a country? Even though it has a full functioning government, if tomorrow the whole rest of the United States like, cease to exist, it has enough uh, institutional power that it could continue as as an entity and it could really provide most, if not all, the needs of its citizens. But it doesn't have legal sovereignty. The sitting legislature as it currently is in Illinois cannot make a law that overrules the constitution or overrules federal law it's what subordinate to a higher entity right in the idea of world politics sovereignty is the highest level that you're not really subordinate to anybody you can have these kind of political theories where if it's a theocracy you're subor- subordinate to whatever religion you follow if it's a democracy you're theoretically subordinate to, to the w- will of the people or whatever, right, if it's a monarchy it's to the will of the the, the the monarch or to the ruling family or to whatever right, those things are political and then in reality, you know, different things are different you know, like reality may or may not have, uh, you know, reflect people's uh, um, claimed uh, uh claimed allegiances or whatever but the idea is what is that a country is sovereign the head of one state cannot dictate through legal means what the head of another state should do a country can only hold itself accountable and responsible to itself it's not accountable to anybody else right so this this what does this mean there's a context to it it doesn't mean that every single mushrik kill him. And everything is lawful in what you do with every. That's not what it is. It's, why? Because jihad is not prosecuted on a, an individual level. Jihad is prosecuted how? It's prosecuted on a, 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 a sovereign level. That one sovereign state prosecutes it against another sovereign state. This is why there was no jihad in Mecca Mukarramah while the Muslims lived as a minority. <coughs> Once they go to Medina Munawara, then they have an army, their limits, borders, there's property, there's, you know, political uh, interest, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. that's when you see battles start to happen. Otherwise, none of it happens within Makkah Muqarama. We don't have this thing that, like, the, the Muslims lived as a, a minority, so they just subordinated, this, this, what you call, um, that they were just kind of, like, uh, leeching off the society that they lived in or that they were uh, you know internally somehow like destabilizing the society that they lived in there are some there are some heterodox claimants to Islam that subscribe to this model of living but a, a view of how the Prophet sallallahu operated in Makkah Muqarrama shows that that's not really what they were doing and common sense dictates that in medina munawwarah there is no need to do that a- anymore either because the rasul sallallahu alaihi was the sovereign of medina there was nobody really who could like stop him from doing anything within the the territory that they controlled right that was the original the original Darul islam is what is medina munawwarah and the the, the area between the Haratul Waqim Haratul Wabra and between the mountains and between the the the, the, the you know wada that that area nobody could really tell him what to do or what not to do uh, and so that was the area of his sovereignty there's no need to lie to anybody anymore there's no need to sub subordinate anybody anymore subvert anyone the word subvert is the one I want to not subordinate to subvert anyone anymore there's no need to do any of that anymore and in Makkah they they weren't subversive you know they weren't like lying cheating to people they were saying what they needed to say at times strategically in the sense that they would preach to some people and not preach to others but there was no like you know oh I don't know where the money went but like secretly we took all the money like that that didn't ever exist Right? There's this concept of taqiyya among certain heterodox groups that claim Islam. We don't believe in that. The ahl Al-Jama'ah, we don't believe in that. Despite all of our differences of opinion in terms of fiqh, in terms of all sorts of other things, we don't believe in that. We don't subscribe to that. That's a, that's, a, that's a thing. The only time a person is allowed to lie is like when presented with grievous bodily injury or death. And then it's only permissible to lie in order to save yourself until you need to save yourself. It's not something that we think is a, a positive or a tool for like political, uh, 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 you know, for, for political uh, um, advancement. Yes, there's the hadith of the Prophet right, that, the, that war is deception. But that's after you declare war with people. That's not before. You're already at war with a group of people. They should not expect anything from you. You should not expect anything from them, right? And telling somebody, you know, oh, like, yeah, I don't know what's going on when you know what's going on. That's not worse than like killing them. So the fact that war has started means that and killing is like the worst thing that you can do to another human being by some, I guess, at least from some measure, right? From some worldly measure. Um, you know, it's just a, a rational entailment that a person should expect whatever from there until that war ends. And then when that war ends, you're not allowed to give a person false... Uh, uh, I'm on. You're not allowed to give a person like, you say, oh, we negotiated a treaty, but I don't really mean it. Like you can't do that anymore. It's only during the the... Uh, operation of warfare. So we don't believe in that. We don't believe in that. Um, and so this idea of qatil a kafatan, it doesn't mean total war. It doesn't mean kill women and children and, and livestock. It doesn't mean that every Muslim is to kill every kafir. Right. This is a very popular thing from people who learn about Islam from reputed sources like Glenn Beck uh, in America. Is what like oh you know like, doesn't the Quran say to kill all the infidels? I'm like, <coughs> not really. Like in that sense, no. And they're like, I don't know, man, maybe you're just doing this saying this to be nice. Like I had these discussions with people, you know, God bless them. They may not be intelligent people, but at least they're honest about what it is so you can get to the point quicker. And I just say, I go, look I go, do you think like Iraq in the Middle Ages, and Egypt in the Middle Ages, and Syria in the Middle Ages, they have huge Christian population, Syria is like a 35% Christian population or whatever, Palestine, like same 30, 35%, 45% Christian population, Lebanon is like half Christian population, uh, you know, uh, Egypt is like 10%. I do you think, you think it was, we, we lack the means to like do a genocide like they used to do in Europe? Or do you think that we were just too weak-willed or we don't take our religion seriously? No, you kind of have a point there, you know. I'm like, yeah, I mean, we are crazy. We are fanatics, right? If that was what our dean taught us, we would have killed every last single person, but we didn't. It's not what our dean teaches us. And to be very frank with you, because this is why this ties in with what this ties in with the discussion about Sicily is what. There's not a Muslim left over there. There's not a Muslim left in southern Spain. I mean, there's like Moroccans and Tunisians and Mongalis that came afterward or whatever, right? But. The original populations there's not there's not anybody left there's not any masjid left nothing left despite having a majority of population in all of those places how 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 weird of a majority was it how overwhelming was it <coughs> malta which is like a small archipelago of south or actually two islands south of sicily very close to sicily but it was a backwater and norman rule was not interrupted there unlike where the Spanish came and opened another office of the Inquisition when they took uh, control of Sicily and Sardinia. They still speak Arabic. In which dialect of Arabic do they speak? They speak Sicilian Arabic. They literally, they say, oh, we speak Maltese, right? I'm like, you don't, what, what is Maltese? It's all Arabic. They say Arabic, but instead of Shukran, they say "grazzi," and they count in Italian or whatever. Um, but that's how thoroughly Muslims islamicized the entire place was so look and on the flip side right what's the only I was talking to Bhai uh, Yusuf what's the only city in Europe that from like pre-modern era has in the same block a, a, a catholic church and a orthodox church and a synagogue and a masjid sorry Evo I mean to be fair Belgrade used to have it as well before the Austrians took it over in like and the Serbs took it over and basically destroyed everything, right? We're the only people who, wherever we have continuous rule, people live side by side. Otherwise, uh, the kind of post-Roman uh, Europe that uh, adopted the teachings of, of either of the two churches uh, or of Protestantism, they don't have that. I mean, the look... Like, you, you know, they, they don't have any of that. The only reason now, you know, they can have different religions living side by side over there is because what? Because they don't believe in religion anymore. So it's a completely different model that they're operating on right now. Uh, otherwise, this idea that somehow Islam is especially violent. No, actually, <coughs> it's especially not violent. And coming back to the idea, what is this idea of قَاتِ الْمُشْرِكِينَ kafatan What does it mean? It means when you're so- when you have sovereign... Uh, uh, rule in a place you're obliged to behave in a certain way that as an individual would be odious right if you were only thinking about yourself you'd be a bad person right but at the level of sovereignty you have to think only about yourself you have to think about the well-being of your own citizens you have to prepare yourself against threats from the outside why? Because at the sovereign level, this is the only way. This is the only way any sort of su- successful polity works, right? This kind of sucks to think about for a moment, by the way. Why? Because when Trump <coughs> bans Muslims from coming into the country, we're like, yo, that's kind of that kind of sucks, right? That's horrible. The idea is what? Is if you're thinking about America only, you should probably ban not just Muslims. You should ban a whole bunch of other people. You should only allow people in that benefit you. This idea of feeding, you know, uh, masses, hungry masses yearning to be free or whatever. This is kind of a fiction that we made up in America. We did it as long as it was in our benefit. He has this huge land with, you know, with, with all this like arable, like farms and things like that and nobody to live there. It means what? A foreign army can come occupy, invade and occupy very easily because we don't have people to defend ourselves. We don't have a means to run an economy. We don't have any of that stuff. So what were they doing? They're saying, okay, you know, bring people, bring your people over from Scotland and from England, you know, and uh, they can work our farms. Okay, as many people as wanted to come, came from there. Now what, bring the Germans. Okay, they came. Now what, bring like uh, North Scandinavians, etc. Now what, we still need like more people because the country is not like viable all right, damn it, bring the Catholics too, let the Irish come, let the Italians come, let the Polish come, let the whatever, right? The same guys right now who are at white supremacist rallies just 30, 40 years ago. They weren't even really white. People used to call them like racist slurs that make people's feelings hurt. Right? Okay, let them in, because we need them. Why is it that there are brown people in like England and in France or whatever, right? Now there are people who are coming. They don't want to say, stay out. We don't want you, right? But there was a time they needed people to work factories. They needed people to work farms. They need the same thing in America, right? Why is it that everything is one of the big reasons everything is more expensive here is that we basically shut the door on our own cheap labor. Was it an economically wise decision or not? I'll let the politicians decide that right because there's some benefits and there's some drawbacks right if you have this huge portion of your population that doesn't believe in the viability of your state and is not you know really contributing anything to its uh, progress it's a political liability on the flip side if nobody wants to do work this also then detracts from your viability coming back walking all of these things back how is this how is it relevant to this idea of, you know, قَاتِلُوا الْمُشْرِكِينَ kafatan, كَمَا يُقَاتِلُونَكُمْ kafatan? The idea is that every sovereign polity is obliged to look after its own welfare and not look out after anybody else's. This is the reason why the Prophet وسلم, there there is a limit to how much he would protect those Muslims that accepted Islam but didn't make hijrah. Make Hydra join the the you know join uh, the Muslims where they are. If not, we'll help you to a degree, but if it's going to compromise the, the the sovereign polity of the Muslims, then like, how much can we help you? What sense does it make that there are people who are completely invested in the project and you're not? Maybe not out of your own choosing, your inability to be invested completely in the project, you know, or maybe stopping or whatever, but. It's one of those hard choices that need to be be made, right? It's a, it's important to understand the seerah. why does the seerah work the way it does, right? Of course, these are, okay, it's an intellectual discussion, but these then bring up for us some very harsh uh, and uh, distasteful realities, which is what? Sometimes people in Muslim countries do stuff <laughs> and we're like, God damn it, you guys hang hung us out to dry now in front of like, you know, Bill at work. And like, how come they never think about minority population? That's not how sovereignty works. That's not how sovereignty works. They have sovereign nations, they have to look after them. Maybe the decision that hung us out to drive is a bad one. I'll accept that possibility. In fact, people in the Muslim world seem to be making really, they may seem to be on a roll of making bad decisions lately, but that's a separate idea. But just the idea that they are supposed to consider <laughs> how we will look in front of like Bill at work as some sort of guiding principle of how they prosecute their internal or their their foreign policies it's complete fail, it's complete disaster this also brings up another interesting truth though for ourselves as a community which is what we may not actually be super beholden to what their interests and needs are as well in other places and I'm not necessarily advocating like completely saying like to hell with all of you because, again, the Rasul, he didn't, he didn't cut off those people who didn't make Hijrah, but he just put them in the second tier that if we're able to help you without compromising our own viability, then we'll do so. We'll expend a you know, great deal of effort. It just should not jeopardize this main module of the project. The same thing with us, that our first, our first uh, uh, objective is to survive Based on that survival, we'll be able to help our neighbors and friends in our country that we live in, that we should will good for, we shouldn't be parasites, we shouldn't live like a, like a fifth column in this land or in any land that we go in. The Muslims never were like that. And the Muslims, in, in uh, the Prophet even amongst the hostile mushrikeen of Quraysh, they weren't like that, as we mentioned before. But at the same time... You cannot be out there trying to help Qatar and the Emirates and Egypt and Pakistan and India and this place and that place and the Palestine and this time and the other thing. And you're, you don't have any preparation for yourself, for your children, for your families, for your community, for your deen, for iman, the iman of your children, for their children, their children's children, etc. Someone can raise the finger against us say, how come you're doing all of this and you're, you are yourself a type of resource and you're extracting them away from the sovereign muslim nations and then bringing them over to a non-muslim country this is a political discussion you can have with people this is again an uncomfortable discussion to have because it's like oh what are, you know like i might have to consider that i might be doing something that's not the in the greatest uh, uh, benefit of the ummah that's a separate discussion it's an interesting discussion we should have those discussions we never have those discussions there are people right now they're right now sal- salivating to watch other play ecuador in a soccer match and i'm like you know what if you wanted the ball so badly why'd you kick it uh, uh and if you you know i don't know the only species i think that's really suited to chasing after stuff that's like uh, kicked or thrown is like is a, is, is a dog but at any rate whatever teach their own let's talk about serious so we're grown 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 men let's talk about serious things you know we're grown-ups our sisters also some of them have that that capacity in them some of our brothers have this capacity in them discuss important things serious things rather than making your life about like all that other stuff right but coming back to this the kafatan means what it means that every sovereign every sovereign uh, uh, uh... polity has the has the obligation and duty to look after its own people and in as much as part of the mandate of Islam is that its full implementation can only be possible in a sovereign polity. Islam also has to do these things and Allah gave the mandate for this. Meaning what? You're a Muslim, I'm a Muslim, if we were exiled to like Mars, we can still as an individual Fulfill our duties, you know. As long as the oxygen is enough or whatever, right? You still say La ilaha illallah muhammad Rasulullah. Even if you don't have an, you know enough oxygen to breathe for the next 30 seconds, you still be Muslim for the 30 seconds you're alive there, right? No other Muslim in sight. If you have oxygen and water, you can still pray your prayers. You can still fast Ramadan. Food and all this other stuff. You know, maybe you have a greenhouse out there. I don't know, right? Whatever. But when I say that Islam cannot fully be practiced, meaning what? Islam is not just an individual thing. There's some. There's a level at which it's practiced in a family, right, between husband, wife, children, parents, right, familial relations. It's practiced as a community that we have to get together. The men have their congregational prayer. We have Salatul Jama'ah, We have Salatul Idain. Uh, a city has to have a judge. It has to have an emir. It has to have all of these things, you know, a country, whatever. That at the Ummah-wide level, it's mandated for uh, uh, it's a mandate of Islam that on an ummah wide level that there should be at least one sovereign polity that is that it rules by the it's mandate of rule and the right by which it rules is what the implementation of the, the order of Allah and his Rasul sallallahu alayhi wasallam. this is part of our deen uh, people mock it in two ways one is by mocking it the normal way one is by claiming that they uh, are uh, you know, they, this is a really important thing but they don't bother to make, like, learn how to make wudu or they uh, literally undermine everybody who's actually supporting any of the, the foundations or pillars on which that state is built, right? Because the idea is what? Can you have a Muslim family if you if the members of the family are not Muslims themselves? No. Right? First the individual then the family. They're not chronologically separated, all of it happens at the same time, but rationally, one is built on the other. One cannot happen without the other. Right? So you can have a, a family that doesn't have a Muslim Islamic dynamic in it, but the individuals are Muslims, some or all of them. right? But you can't have it the other way around, where it's an Islamic family but the individuals are not Muslims. right? Like that, if you're constantly undermining your masjid, if you don't pray five times a day, if you don't know how to make wudu, you didn't learn the sharia that, that the state is supposed to be implementing, you know if you're not invested in producing those people who know it or those people who implement it or those people who teach it or preserve it or the people who you know learn the hifz of the quran or all these things are the pillars on which that's that's built these are the foundations and then what the jihad is described in the hadith of the prophet as the Virwatul sinam like as if islam right in a very arab bedouin metaphor as if islam was a camel then jihad is what? it's like the top of the hump of the camel there's so many other things that that happens on the back of so the second type of people who make a mockery of the mandate to make a sovereign Islamic polity are those people who talk about that, talk about it, talk about it they're talking about the hump without having ever like seen what a camel is in real life uh, and that's kind of bogus as well but this is what this means uh, قَاتِلُ الْمُشْرِكِينَ kafatan كَمَا يُقَاتِلُونَكُمْ kafatan. that this is a recognition that that between sovereign bodies, there's no law. There's only one rule that there's no rules. Even with us, at least we have the Sharia prohibits us from doing certain things. Uh, But that list of prohibitions is drastically reduced when it comes to from dealing with one sovereign polity to another still. You're not allowed to kill innocent people. You're not allowed to kill non-combatants. Um, uh, you're not allowed to kill women and children. You're not allowed to, you know, etc. Burn crops for no reason, etc., etc. So we still have some rules, but those are like self-imposed. They're autonomic. They're not. It's not that at that at that level there's some sort of fair. You you can reasonably expect some sort of fair conduct. It doesn't work that way. Uh, rather, it's understood uh, amongst all human beings that that level. When you get to that level, the only rule is what it's a cage match, and the only rule is that there's no rules and uh, this is inshallah uh, where we inshallah uh, go to the next part of what I want to discuss which is our um, the trip to Sicily. And uh, you know as everyone knows right now, Sicily is not currently inhabited by the majority Muslim population. All the Muslims that are there are of a different pedigree than the ones who built it because they were all wiped off the map at some point or another. And uh, uh, there's a lot of lessons to be uh, learned for what happened and why it happened and how it happened. But uh, it's good to think about, talk about, remember it uh, for a little while Um, because there are brothers in, in, in Islam, right? that one of the signs of iman is that the, the the description of the believers is as Allah ta'ala said in surah al Hashar, ba'dihim the people who come after the muhajirin and ansar are the ones who say rabbana a'buna firlana wa li ikhwanina bil iman our lord forgive us and forgive our brothers who came before us in faith do not place in our hearts rancor for the people who believe so you should have love for the people who came before you. The, despite the shortcomings of our forefathers, in general, we have a good opinion of them. Uh, not every specific individual, maybe, but like in general, they were good people. Uh, and we ask Allah Ta'ala, don't make us from the haters that we hate each other, which is a sickness of religious people, is that they start to hate one another over like small things. But those small things become aggrandized inside the heart. Rabbana Inna Rahim, our Lord, you are... Most forgiving and most merciful and so the story of Islam in Sicily uh, it starts with uh, it starts with Tunis, Tunis, what's now the modern st- state of Tunis, Tunisia, what they call it in English. Uh, the original metropolis of, of Tunisia is a city called Perwan. It was built by the companions or the Ta'ala anhum. It's, there are a couple of very special cities like that. They were actually built and founded by the companions of the Messenger of Allah. So, Qairawan is one of, those, one of those cities. And um, from it, the rule of the Caliphil uh, province of Africa, uh, of Afriqiya, was based. The Caliphil province of Afriqiya excludes what the modern state of Morocco is. Um, the modern state of Morocco was actually conquered by uh, Sayyidina uh, uh, Mullah Idris, who was the great grandson of Sayyidina al-Hassan, radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And it never, uh, it never uh, was part of the sovereign uh, authority. It was never under the sovereign authority of any other state uh, other than it that claimed the caliphate. So to this day, the Moroccan king claims he's the al Mu'mineen. If you want to have a Khalifa there, you can go take Baya with him. If he'll if he'll have you, I don't think he will though. Um, he may not be interested. But uh, I don't know. I don't know. You have to talk to him about that. But the point is, is that that uh, so that's the the Caliphial Africa it doesn't include Morocco, and what's south of it. It also doesn't include Egypt, which was considered to be Egypt Sudan, like what's south of that, the Horn of Africa, all of that. So it's basically what we consider North Africa, all the Maliki non-Morocco in West African countries, so Libya, Algeria, Tunis. And from it was governed uh, all of those provinces. And so if you look on a map, um, Sicily is actually really close to Tunis. It's like really close to Tunis. It's closer to the toe of Italy, of the peninsula in Italy, what's called Calabria. But it, it doesn't mean it's not really, really close to Tunis. Geologically, it's actually part of Africa. And when you arrive there, you realize it's, geologically, it's not part of Europe. It's not part of even Italy, to be honest with you. You see palm trees all over the place. You see, uh, you see really, uh, uh, a lot of things that you see in Tunis and that you see in, in Libya and that you see in, in, in Algeria, Morocco, etc. Um, the weather is very similar to those places. The land is very similar to those places. And, you know, part of the, Part of the thing when discussing Sicily is like there's this idea in in because uh, obviously, right? Mushrikina kafatan kama, you Someone's like, Oh no man, like the you know, the West embraces us or whatever. No, Allah Ta'ala says that they fight you kafatan. Just think about it for a moment. You think do I wanna agree with him or not? Okay, here's 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 uh here's, you know, for your consideration while we're all wondering whether we wanna agree with Allah Ta'ala or not, right? There's this idea, and Muslims themselves ask these questions. They're like, well, if our forefathers came there with the army and conquered their way in, you know, like, what right do we have to, like, say bad to somebody else who, like, took the army and kicked them out? And I'm like, okay, think about this. The western part of Sicily is the part that's close to Tunis. The eastern part of sicily is the part that's close to italy okay from before the roman times the inhabitants of the western part of sicily were primarily carthaginian they spoke a semitic language they're probably genetically related to you two gentlemen right because the carthaginians where is their homeland carthage used to be a province of what Of phoenicia the capital which is a tire it's in in in, in uh, uh, uh modern day lebanon what's the arabic word for sur right sur at some point or another gets clobbered by the babylonians then by the persians and it becomes a vassal state of those other empires however neither of them did their arm ever extend to carthage so carthage becomes free and it starts to become a sovereign state it's no longer a tributary province of of the center and how big were they Well, they took on the Roman Empire and Rome basically considered them to be a big enough threat that they fought like three very expensive and massive wars. And they thought they, you know, their planning was if we cannot, you know, if we can't subdue them completely, our empire is going to like be at threat of loss. And so, you know, there's legendary wars the military stratagem of which is still studied to this day in like officer uh, academies one of the best and most talented commanders to ever take the field of battle Hannibal you know took elephants through the Alps from Africa through the Alps and then came down from the northern part of uh, Italy and wrought havoc and almost like trashed Rome like it's interesting history you can read about it later but fun fact they all spoke semitic language meaning probably a semi-intelligible uh, dialect of arabic and so they they preferred the climate and the the area in the western part of the island whereas the eastern part was largely greek and then there were some people who were there from before the Carthaginians and from before the Greeks came to Sicily, and they were driven by them kind of closer to the center of the island. So what happens? The Muslims, they, they during the reign of Ziyadatullah al-Aghlabi, who is a, um, who is a ruler of, of, of Abbasid Ifriqiya, of the, the, the province of Africa and the Abbasid Caliphate, and he has basically a, an agreement with the Khalifa in, in Baghdad who is you know significantly getting weaker and weaker. doesn't really have direct rule that, hey, rule in my name and uh, don't butt heads with me so much. And uh, other than that, we'll leave you alone. He says, okay, we can do that. And so his investiture is, for all intents and pur- purposes, autonomous. And so he has a Qadi. His qadi that he appoints is a, a scholar by the name of Ibn Muhariz. And he appoints a second qadi, which is an abnormal. It's an abnormal thing to do. Which is what? That he appoints a second qadi who is Asad bin Furat. Asad bin Furat, we talked about him before. You probably have heard about him. Uh, he's worth you know, mentioning that he's a direct student of Imam Malik in Hadith and in Fiqh, he's a direct student of uh, Imam Muhammad bin Hassan Shaybani. So he goes and he studies uh, Fiqh from the Iraqis. He comes back. He studies, uh, you know, some with uh, Ibn Qasim and Ibn Wahab, the two uh, most important students of Malik as well. And uh, he's just a very charismatic and dynamic personality. People love him, except for they're more interested in his Maliki fiqh than they are in his Hanafi fiqh and uh, what ends up happening is that because he studied with Malik and because he has this great amount of knowledge and he has he also transmits the wata directly from him etc etc he becomes judge but as kind of like a proxy proxy maliki you know because he because of his vast knowledge it's said that his personality was completely the opposite of ibn muhriz ibn muhriz was not an outgoing man and he was not a man of many words and he was not a, a charismatic leader but he spoke little, he thought about things a lot, and when he spoke it was usually right. And uh, it said about Asim bin furat that he was a man who knew what was going on around him, he knew how to deal with people, he knew how to talk to people, he had a great amount of knowledge, a vast amount of knowledge, and his knowledge outstripped the knowledge of Ibn Muharis in terms of like what he knew, what he could produce in terms of his ilm. However, Ibn Muhriz was right more more often than 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 uh, his co judge was, and so what happens is that uh, there was a, a Byzantine commander by the name of Euphemius who had some gripe against the 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 Byzantine Empire. Byzantine Empire is what? It's Rome. It's the Roman Empire. Roman Empire had two halves. The western half was ruled from Rome and the eastern half was ruled from Constant- Constantinople but they're one state. What ends up happening is we start to refer to something as the Byzantine Empire not because it's not Rome, it is Rome, but the western half at some point gets sacked uh, and is unable to keep its own uh, sovereignty intact. It gets sacked by uh, um, basically Germanic tribes serially after 400 or whatever, right? So the only part of the Roman state, it's still, it is Rome, but the only part of the Roman state that that's still functional and has a sovereignty intact is what's ruled from Constantinople, not from the from the West. Uh, and so what happens is that they actually will uh, conquer. Although Sicily was part of the jurisdiction of the Western state, they'll actually conquer it and just run it and admin- administer it themselves. So Euphemius uh, basically comes to uh, the court in Cairoan, and he he says, "Hey, look, you know." Uh, uh i have this gripe with the byzantine empire and why don't you send me an army uh, uh, to rule and i'll give you tribute in this amount every year and like i promise we won't make war with you and this and that and one of the in- in- inducements he says is that by the way they're breaking their treaty with you you have a treaty that you won't keep uh, byzantine prisoners without telling them they won't keep muslim prisoners without telling you they have a bunch of muslim prisoners and they basically nab them on the sea and they're not telling you about it and so what happens is that the, uh, the Amir Ziyadullah, he asks his two judges, the right? two judges are the like, whatever, the top ulama in, 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 in the government, right? So he asks them, what are we supposed to do? Is this something jayas or not? Um, one might hope that it's because of Ziyadullah's piety, but also there's a very practical political element at play, which is what that the people won't follow if the Qadis say that it's not legitimate lucky for today's rulers that's not a problem anymore anyhow that was a sarcastic comment not everyone picks up on my sarcasm the sarcastic comment but uh... uh so what happens is that Ibn Muhriz is like you know what getting into war is like a big deal let's just wait and see and Asad bin Farad says no strike while well, the hot they broke the treaty it's right there. This guy is giving us all this information, etc. Uh, let's, let's take an army and let's do this. And uh, again, in the context of الْمُشْرِكِينَ كَمَا يُقَاتِلُونَكُمْ كافتن, It makes sense actually. It was a very wise move. That They already breached the, the treaty and it's right there. And uh, it's better for the Muslims and it's better for them as well, for Sicily as history will show. That the Muslims should do this, and so what happens is Asad bin Furat, his father came as one of the Mujahideen who conquered uh, Tunis uh, for, this, for the sake of Allah Taala. He came as a child with his father, uh, and now as the judge of the of the state, uh, he oversaw uh, the the fleets that were being readied to sail, and uh, he said that I've never seen anything like this in my life, and one of the one of the interesting things is because he bought in so wholesale to the... The, the plan of conquest, uh, a great amount of the army that set sail and went to Sicily that first time. They were actually the maktab teachers, they are actually the student, Hif students, they are actually the of the quran they were the students of knowledge, they were the fuqaha, they were the محدثون, Um and because of that, uh, uh, Ziyadatullah actually made him the commander of that army. And this is a unique honor that he had. Um, that very rarely will have will have been repeated in the history of Islam and to my knowledge never happened before him which is that he was both the Qadi of the state and also the commander of the army the, the commander of the, the military at the same time and you know if it was the other way around that we made the a general like some battle hard and rough riding general into the Qadi that's convenient <laughs> that's very expedient in fact and usually will not result in any sort of like real respect for the laws of Islam but this is the Qadi who was made into the commander it's the other way around Uh, and Asad bin Furat was an student of knowledge and this was his idea is that we're going to go and like we're going to carry this ilm it was an idealistic uh, 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 an idealistic uh, 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 you know foray that they had they were going to go and they're going to spread the deen of Allah Ta'ala and they're going to spread the makatib and they're going to spread the madaris they're going to spread the uh, la ilaha illallah they're going to spread all of these things and so they make landfall in a city called uh, uh, Mazar the Italian name of it is Mazara del Vallo Vallo, actually I guess because it's not Spanish even though it's very Spanish-y but uh, uh, they made landfall there, they conquered that that's where Imam Mazari is from uh, who wrote the commentary on, on the on Sahih Muslim and who uh, um, was muhakkak of the Maliki school? His sharh uh, that he wrote on the talqeen of Qadi Abdul Wahab uh, uh, is a, a book that's one of the four main sources that the that Khalil takes fatwa from. Uh, at any rate, they make landfall over there, and then they attempt to siege Syracuse Syracuse is like the Syracuse New York is named after they uh, siege it why because it was the capital of the Greek side of the uh, uh, of the island in the old days and the Byzantines made it their capital of the uh, of the island of their province interestingly enough they actually once they arrived at the <coughs> island they actually had uh, Euphemia uh, um Imprisoned because they didn't trust him because you never trust a traitor Just like W didn't learn from uh, this uh, Chalabi guy, right? Uh, but that's so they went they went for Syracuse. There was a great battle outside of this uh, The city of Syracuse as himself carried the flag in that battle and uh, uh, he caught plague and he was shaheed in the path of Allah he was buried somewhere outside of Syracuse after he passes, that army appoints, because they're like they're like in the middle of like, just like some island in the middle of the Mediterranean they've never been to before you have to admire, even if you don't accept like, oh look, you know, I don't believe in all this fighting This not good for you, you have to admire at least medieval people whether they're on your team or not <laughs> you have to admire the gall that these people had which is that we're going to get on the ship and we're going to walk up to this place we've never been before we don't speak any language, we don't speak any of these things and like we're going to do this thing because this is what we believe is right whether you agree with it or not so they weren't able to take Syracuse and so they turned and after Asad bin Furat passed amongst themselves because you can't just email on and say okay, what should we do now they appointed a commander amongst themselves and then they turned their siege to uh, they turned their, their attack to Palermo which is not an it's not it's not, an important, it's not a very important city. The metropolis of Sicily is what? It is Syracuse, Sarcusa, right? So they turn their attention to Palermo and they conquer it. And they're like, this is a really nice place. And they made it into the, their capital. and it has been the metropolis of Sicily from that t- time until this. The reason this is important to mention is what? is that the Muslims, wherever they went, people can be salty about conquest all they want. You can be salty about the conquest of Constantinople. You know, Serbs can be salty about, you know, the Muslims conquering Central Europe and Hungary and, uh, you know, the Siege of Vienna, you know, the, Span- the Spaniards can be salty about the whatever, like, foreign invasion of Spain, you know, people in the Muslim world, you know, they're like, oh, look, you know, they, these uh, Muslims came and were actually, you know, Berbers or were Phoenicians or were uh, uh, Amalekites or God knows whatever the hell people want to call themselves nowadays, how what pronoun they want to identify by or whatever, right? You say all of those things, right? India, same thing. India, Pakistan is the same thing. Oh, look, they came and they, like, massacred 9 million Hindus or whatever which is like mathematically not impossible like Hitler with German efficiency and modern technology wasn't able to kill that many people like within his lifetime like it does, even the math doesn't add up right um, uh, all of these things you can say all of them but one thing that's a proof in the face of these uh, claims which is what wherever the Muslims went like we became part of the land that we lived in we made it better in ways that The locals have to admit, because nobody wants to see anything when they come to India, but what is it they want to see? They want to see the Taj Mahal. They want to see the Red Fort, right? Because it's nice. You don't do that if you're there to rob and loot things and send them back to England, right? (coughs) What is it the British made over there that people want to see? Nothing. They say, oh, look, we built like uh, railroads. Yeah, so you could steal stuff and then ship it back to England, right? Muslims didn't do that. Palermo, to this day, is the jewel of, of, of Sicily. They never. They never moved the capital back to Syracuse. In fact, Syracuse is a relatively town of relatively minor importance nowadays in, in Sicily. It still exists. It wasn't like demolished or anything, but it's minor importance. why? Because the Muslims wherever they went, they set up their own things and those things were more uh, uh, they were more viable. So in even in the part of Sicily, Sicily is kind of like a triangle, right? Um, the Muslim car- geographers basically made a survey of Sicily that would be used for government purposes. They divided it into provinces and things like that, right? So it's kind of like a triangle. It has three points, right? So the three main provinces of Sicily uh, were divided like that. that there's the province of Mazar, which is the west where the Muslims first made themselves at home. Uh, and it's climatically geographically, it's very unique. The crops, the same types of crops grow in that area, et cetera, et cetera then there's the the province of Messina which is the part that the triangle tip that touches or c- comes close to touching Italy and then there's one in the south uh which is uh um which is called Noto right and sarcusa is in Noto what's the big hub of trade and uh governance now it's Catania which is what it's Arabic Catania it's actually, you know, the name is Arabic. It was a city built up by the Muslims. The Muslims went there and they made it better. This is one of the most amazing things about because we can't like, you know, like I have like five more minutes until my hours up or whatever, right? But one of the most amazing things about going to Sicily is what? Is that the locals were like, yeah, when the Arabs came, they did this for us, they did that for us, they did this for us, they did that for us. They actually acknowledged it and they were actually they were actually proud of it. One of the most impressive things that I thought about them saying you know, from all the the many things they they boasted about, this is, you know, what we benefited from Muslim rule or from Arab rule, is that they said that before the Muslims came, we we didn't have any uh, uh, irrigation systems. And so the word in Sicilian, because Sicilian is a different language than Italian is. There's actually, I took a picture of it, I'll show it to you. There's a Sicilian-Italian dictionary. They're intelligible for people with some background in linguistics, but if you don't have a background in linguistics, they're not intelligible. Like a person, for example, like... You know Urdu, right? Right? There's some similarities between Urdu and Bangla, right? But like at first glance, you don't really, they're not intelligible, right? You have to kind of think about it a little bit, right? Also Bangla speaker? Yeah, right? So do you understand Urdu at all? Right, it's like that. They have to learn Italian as a separate language. Sicilian is a different language than Italian is. Uh, Or like, for example, if anyone knows a little bit of Spanish and then you hear someone speak Portuguese, you're like, what in the world is that? Like, even though they're actually quite similar languages, but they're actually not, like, intelligible with one another. So, in Sicilian, the word for canal is what? It's qanat, like in Arabic, like qanatun, right? It's the same word for channel and it's the same word for canal. Someone might make the argument that this is originally not an Arabic word. But... The word is not borrowed in, into Sicilian from Greek or Latin. It's borrowed into Sicilian from what? From Arabic. Why? Because the Muslims were the ones you literally see like their caves, their stones, their literally ways that they they had ingenious ways. Both the Arabs and the Berbers had ingenious ways of somehow like extracting every drop of water out of very arid arid climates and using that for irrigation. Right. The Hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, right, that the best sadaqa is water... So that's a sadaqah that they receive the reward for to this day. The people still eat and drink, the crops still eat and drink, the animals still eat and drink from, that, from those, those canals. They say in, in certain places, we still use the traditional irrigation systems. And if we were to have to build them again ourselves, we wouldn't have been able to. From there, you see what are the crops that, the, that Sicily is the most famous for? Lemons, oranges, pistachios. They very freely say that the Muslims were the ones who brought them here. Interestingly enough, Sicilians have a separate language, right? This whole idea of what a nation-state is or whatever, right? Sicily has its own language. It has its own people. It has its own customs. You know, it has its own humor. It has its own things that are separate separate from, from Italy. Italy as a country has only existed for like 200 years. It's basically a, a weird thing that happened because Napoleon conquered the peninsula of italy he made it into one subordinate puppet state of france and then napoleon got his backside like handed to him by the the allies and so they have to do something with like europe politically afterwards so they're like oh here you know and so they just basically you're a country now you all rule, live together, and rule together, or whatever. So Sicily is by Italy, so it gets given to. It's not actually part of Italy, right? If you don't believe me, if you think all oh, this, you know, you know, whatever, this Muslim guy, he, he, he looks like a Terry, he talks like a Terry. He, you know, like he's making this up. One of the funniest things is I saw a uh, 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 graffiti, and what was written on it? Sicily is not Italy. Where was it? In Rome. <laughs> where in rome why because the people from the south of italy in general they resent this because the the train from the train from milan which is like up like by the border of switzerland and whatever right to rome which is halfway in the middle of the peninsula it's three hours three and a half hours or so the train from rome to sicily which is geographically about the same distance it's ten hours ten and a half hours why the southern, the southern part of the country is completely neglected. The people who live in the south are treated like crap, and they look at them like, they're, you guys are just a bunch of Arabs anyway. To this day, and there's resentment between them. This is why the, Sicilians in Ameri- or the Italians in America are all Sicilians or Calabrians. Calabria, Apulia <coughs> is the heel of the boot. Calabria is the toe of the boot, and Sicily is Sicily. To this day, all of them, if they want to get an education, they have to move north. If they want to get a job that pays well, they have to move north. They have their own languages, they're not Italian. It's a different language. And so a lot of the converts in Italy, there are a lot, number of converts that I met, they're actually people who are originally from the south, so their mind is a little bit opened already because of that. The reason I mention this is what? Is that this idea that, oh look, Muslims were foreigners and then they kicked them out, right? Who, who, who conquered uh, Sicily from the Muslims? The Normans, they're from Norway. They're from where? If Italians are foreigners in Sicily, you know, it's not, uh, they speak a different language. What the hell people are coming here? What are you gonna like eat like uh, pickled cod or herring or what, you know, like, what is that? How is that somehow like liberating it from a foreign invader, right? But you know what, the Normans were cool. They were hadith al-ahad, they were only like one or two generations three generations at max like uh, many of the many of them in christianity and they're like hey this muslim stuff is really cool so they had churches built with arabic inscriptions all over the place i'll show them to you Many of them are actually destroyed by who? By the later Christians who took over and they're like, what the hell is all of this muzzy looking stuff? They destroyed, they literally destroyed the palaces, they destroyed the gardens, they destroyed, why, because, but still, they had huge churches sponsored. They look like they're drop shipped out of Tunisia. It's not like they couldn't have hired an Italian or hired a French, Frenchman or something like that to build them, but they actually thought this is actually way cooler. They were enchanted by it. Roger the second, the the son of the the, the Norman Conqueror who conquered uh, Sicily, he actually loved Arabic so much they say that he used to keep court poets in his in his court and he used to himself write shad, which is a big deal, right? You're an Arab, aren't you? You have a diwan of poetry you've ever wrote? Do you know like which wasn't which thing is in like qasida burda? Which wasn't is it in? Do you know? No, because that's like kind of hard. You have to know like a lot of Arabic. We're like, oh, Oh my God, someone مفعول بِهِ and and This and that, brother. We don't need this one. Yani. you know, like I have uncles at the masjid when I would like talk about the Arabic Quran. They're like, brother, we don't need you to yani uh, say this and this and that. I'm like, why not? It's Arabic Quran. I mean, people like her so he he liked Arabic so much. He you know he actually used to keep his posse were like Arabic, the literary crowd, and he used to what. He used to himself say, say, share, right? His inscriptions start with Rahim, For all of your heha uh, boys uh, out, out in, uh, you know, where we live, uh, you know, that say, oh, Allah is the moon god. Well, guess what? You know, your great great grandfather who like, you know, was a rough riding like Norseman who like, actually remembers seeing like temples where Thor and Odin were worshiped, like literally. The name he used for uh, God is what, Allah? I mean there are other proofs that are even greater than that, but the thing is that, that that's, their inscriptions began Bismillahir Rahmanir Raheem and they were baptized, I mean they were they were Catholics, they were not Muslims. But they saw great khair in the, 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 the culture and in the uh, um, economy. And in the uh, uh, the rule of the of the of the Muslims, and they're like, why in our mind would we ever want to like subvert this? Because way better than anything else that the, that's there in, in in Italy. So what they did is that the court, the hukum of the court, would be recorded in Greek, but all the mid tier and the low tier administrators were all Arabic. It was all Arabic, and there was a fair amount of. Uh, um, of uh, of patronage of arabic art uh, arab arts and culture there were masajids that were still calling the adhan that still people were still praying in etc there was some tension because they were trying to bring in immigrants from the catholic part lombard, lombardy the catholic part of like, lombard illinois you know what lombard means it means long beard it's one of the early latinized germanic tribes that like basically overruns rome right But uh, it's, you know, and so the Lombards, they try to force settle them, you know, to be kind of like the brute squad that's there to back up the Normans in case the Arabs and Berbers get out of hand. Right. So there's some tension between them. But by and large, there is a Muslim community there and they are the majority inhabitants of the island. It's just that they're disenfranchised at this point to some degree. But there's some lip service and they're, they're still making a living. They're still getting along. What ends up happening, Roger the first, Roger the second, William the first, William the second. Roger the first, by the way, his wife was the first cousin of of the (coughs) wife of William the Conqueror in England, right? It's the same Norman dynasty that rules England, right? Um, So what happens is that William the second, he doesn't have any heir. And in order to end a fight with the, you know, internally amongst the Normans, he says, okay, if I die without an heir like I'll have a kid right how hard is that maybe interesting the process to having a kid right so how hard is that so he he says okay if i die without an heir what ends up what, what I'll give the kingship to uh, my cousin who's a nun in an abbey like what could go wrong well he died before he could have a kid Qadrullah mashafa'al. there was a german prince of the hohenstaufen family which was which were from the holy roman empire if you're not familiar with history the holy roman empire there's only three things you need to remember about it it was neither holy nor was it roman nor was it an empire meaning it wasn't a theocratic state they're mostly german germanic kings they're not roman and it wasn't an empire they mostly ruled like their own land it wasn't like super expansionist or whatever uh, nor did it have one direct imperial rule but there were like a bunch of like little pieces of it that they it was more like a confederation but they called themselves that the pope gave them whatever titles and things like that so when the Hohenstaufens come the pope says you got to kick all these muslims out they're making me feel uncomfortable and so what does he do he enslaves them and brings them to southern Italy where they teach people how to farm the land and make a whole bunch of money and build masajids and madrasas and things like that and then later on the Pope's like ok you gotta kill them all because they're going to take over this whole place the Germans their rule is followed by the French the House of Anjou which actually rules also the, the British crown at some point and then it's followed by the Spanish when the Spanish get there they open a branch of the Inquisition so what happens the Germans will kick all the Muslims out enslave them and then kill them but on the mainland not in sicily in general i mean they'll kill them as well but the the last order is on the mainland the spanish what they do is they open a branch of the inquisition if there's any stragglers left that are like keeping their islam dl or that have some sort of memory of islam or there's a building with an inscription or there's some any sort of memory of islam anywhere they're the ones who methodically go like street to street basically ferreting everything out and killing people and this and that and the other thing but again think about this the Sicilians We're talking about kicking out foreign invaders and Sicily being free right who lived there before Phoenicians and Greeks Phoenicians and then some Greeks then the Romans came they're not Romans the Sicilians were not Latin speaking people then after them the Byzantine Greeks then after them, the Muslims, right? So the Greeks had claimed to half of the island at some point, and then the Muslims are Semitic-speaking people from Tunis. They have some claim to the other half of the island, right? After they're gone, who is there? Germans, French, Spanish, and now Italy. It's still under foreign rule by that standard, by that metric. You see a bunch of churches that look like Tunisian masajid that are oriented not to the qibla. Interestingly enough, not to the qibla. Has anyone here been to the Maghreb before? You've been to like Morocco? You haven't. All of the masajid in Morocco are off from the qibla by a certain amount. So you'll see if even if you go into the into, into the qarawiyyin and, and fast, the lines are crooked. The, the, in some masajid, the lines are crooked. In the qarawiyyin, the lines are straight. Everyone takes a quarter turn to the right and prays. Because the qibla is off, there's a, 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 an incorrect calculation that happens in many of the masajid, many of the old masajid, most of the old masajid in Morocco, and so all of the Sicilian churches are facing the incorrect qibla of the mosque. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even some of the buildings, to be honest with you, that are that are uh, that were built by the Normans. Um, there's a possibility they actually weren't built by the Normans, they were just appropriated Masajid. And why is that? It's because like our tour guide was like, oh look, Islamic water art. What is the wuzuhana? Like there's, I showed pictures on, if whoever follows on Facebook, right? <clears throat> it's not Chefalu. Chafalu, I took pictures and showed the place from Chafalu where there's like these, all these spigots about this high off the ground that water's coming out of and Islamic water art, right? You know? Uh, uh, and so, like, we're like, oh, cool! It's like we got to make wulu. So, like, our group made wulu from that place and moved on. We went to eat pizza in Catania in the in the in the eastern part of the the island. And so, the manager of the pizza place was Moroccan, who you know actually gave khutbah in in Catania. And so he's like, you know, we were we, we were like, we didn't know where we were gonna eat. He's like, oh, I'll just come eat at my place, no problem. So we had pizza at his place. It's the only place in the world I've ever had pistachio pizza because pistachio is special in Sicily, right? So anyway so i was telling him like yeah it's wild man like this whole place is like so like like uh, ghost muslimed out you know and uh, i explained this like they're like islamic water art and it's like a per- apparently a place for making wudu he's like yeah there's one right there from his restaurant he says he's, literally just walk right there he goes this used to be the old masjid this still the wudu khanas are still there the river runs through the central square of the of the city and they're, you know, like, why would they make the central square of the city there? Like, literally, the whole river is canaled and it runs through the city and they divert the water for their own usage. And they You don't see that. You don't see wuzukhanas in a church, do you? Right? Um, so, it's really interesting. So many... Like, the word meskeen, they still use in their language. They... Uh, the word for the old city is Medina. Right? There's a... In the city of Enna, Qasr Giovanni, jeevani in Arabic. There's still... A neighborhood called Irribato which was the ribat of the city and they still call it that uh, and so there's like so much that even the 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 Inquisition wasn't able to expunge and expel and because the locals had this idea in them that we have our own language we have our own culture we have our own traditions and these foreigners who came and conquered didn't do anything for them you understand what I'm saying they didn't enrich the place it was a tributary for somebody else they didn't actually make life better over there by and large or at least the locals didn't feel that they made the life better over there. this whole idea of like why the mafia exists is because it was an island that's like ruled by foreigners you know people now are sick of the the criminal activity murder and violence and things like that but the idea is at some point even the locals who don't like the mafia because there's all these like anti-mafia like flags and things like that in places they'll say there was a time where people looked up to and respected the mafia why because the rulers and the government didn't care about us you know these guys used to care for us they used to take care of like things they would rob from the rich and give to the poor and this and that they had, at least had this idea the concept only could it could it could only do well when the local population is completely neglected right Otherwise, Sicily has been an economic backwater since the Muslims were expelled in the Norman time. Uh, otherwise it was opulently and wildly the most wealthy uh, uh, you know, piece of land in all of Europe. Palermo, uh, I've read in some accounts, was the second most populous city in all of Europe after Rome itself. And the Muslims ruled for less than 300 years over there. That when they left, Palermo, Palermo is still the metropolis, is still the capital, is still the jewel of Sicily. Uh, even though there's like all sorts of awesome other places all over the island. But, you know, the Muslims did something that, that, that they can be proud of and that the locals still appreciate. And they appreciate the fact that nobody else did that for them. Nobody else treated them that way as well. Uh, it's my hope, inshallah, that we visit more often and that we foster and cultivate the ties. There was a sister who actually accepted Islam uh, at the, uh, at the uh, uh, last Jummah that we, uh, that we went to. And there are all kinds of people, you know, whenever we'd pray in a place... You know and you think that oh that's it you know the crusades are starting up again you know like these guys are going to shut us down inquisition style what happens it was not that at all in fact in fact the uh you know the comment that we would get when we'd pray in a place like a, an old masjid or whatever we'd pray in congregation always it's like you know uh there was a time when there used to be you know muslims used to live here with us side by side and they used to have masjids and they used to whatever and people got along that was a better time so we're happy we got to see that again you know, I'm sure there's some haters out there for sure, but in general, this is the sentiment that we got from people, and uh, this is the you know this is the fruit of the jihad fi sabilillah when it's done with a good intention and that people did it properly, and uh, it's also the the sad story of what happens when the ummah abandons it that they were basically cast out to their enemies and left to the dogs basically to be killed, uh, enslaved and killed uh, in genocide, and uh, uh, you know. The story of how, how the Muslims lost Sicily is a very uh, twisted and messed up story, actually, to be honest with you. Maybe we can talk about it some other time. Um, it's actually a good plug for the Aqidah Tahawiyah because uh, a, a large amount of um, the story of why Sicily was lost is because of the heterodox reign of the Ubaidiyah, of the, the, um, the Fatimi, uh rule in Egypt. Um, it's why it was basically ignored, and it basically, uh, uh was leached for as much money as could have been gotten out of it, and then not protected or defended when it was under threat. Um, which, you know, the Ummah history, we should read history, all kind of weird things that happened in our history. Some of them are really not good, and, um... Things only were made better when people got together and like made an effort. And that's kind of still how it is, that as long as we keep acting like yahoos, we're gonna keep uh, going from one uh, catastrophe to another and from one calamity to another and from one massacre to another and from one genocide to another. And when people get together and decide, hey, you know, uh, we will protect ourselves and look after our own interests, both in this world and the hereafter, uh, um, the madad of Allah Ta'ala comes. And good things can happen, you know, it's not like people are like waiting for the Dajjal to come and then, you know, whatever. No, that might happen for sure. But, you know, good things can still happen if people get together and like act like uh, human beings. Otherwise, the Ummah is not in the situation it is because Islam is a certain way versus Christianity or because like brown people are inferior to white people or because, you know, the weather is too hot over there to do anything correct or any of these things. It's very plainly uh, and easily uh, can be chalked up to very bad decisions that have been made for very long amounts of time uh, across very large numbers of people people choosing to live uh, uh, lives that are individualistic and don't have any sort of outlook uh, and uh, you know um, thinking that if I have this penny wise and pound foolish mentality that somehow even though everybody else burns and goes to hell I'm going to make it and the fact is that we know it can't work You know, if a person thinks through it you know it can't work rather the Rasul taught us that it's like we're on a, we're all in the same ship, you know, if we sink, we sink together and if we make it, we make it together, if you're, you know, if you're just like oh, I'm just a mouse over here that's like chewing away at this plank in the deck or whatever keep chewing, keep chewing, you'll sink the whole damn ship, you know one person can make that difference and on the flip side, you know, when the hole is coming, if they plug it, they can make the whole difference as well, it's a different mode of thinking and uh, out of large frustrations in life I've come to the idea that Real Salehin is my attempt to be part of the plugging the hole, you know, and I hope that it counts for that for, for, for myself and for you as well. So Allah Khairan for coming and listening. Uh, to this and my other rants as well Allah Ta'ala accept and give something better for the Ummah of Sayyidina Muhammad Inshallah those people who are there some of them they're the descendants of the Sadat some of them are the descendants of the Companions they're the descendants of the the, the Hufad of Qur'an and Muhaddithin and Fuqaha and they're the descendants of the armies of Fatah uh, you know they're the descendants of good people maybe better people than you and me and better people than our forefathers Uh, And so may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala return Islam to those lands as well and uh, iman to those uh, people as well and uh, um, make it a means also for our salvation as well.